Welcome to Veterans Day of Mind. I'm Garen Jones, and I've got a real treat for you coming up today, but just a little bit of housekeeping first, so get your notebooks out. VSOM store, it'll be online until the 15th. Um, basically, as I've explained before, we'll be taking the store down for a few months, um, and then we'll be putting up for summer, so you can get your summer collection on, aka your tank tops, your vests, before you go to a pizza. Uh, that's going to be up there, and then we will have uh, we'll take it down then, and then it'll go back up before winter for hoodies and all that kind of stuff. So it's going to be on there um, for a little bit longer. It just allows me to streamline the cost of the podcast and to streamline the time of the podcast. Um, I think you all agree that the time will be better going into bringing you more guests than it is to bringing you more t-shirts. Um, I think I think it's great to have the merch. I enjoy wearing it myself. I enjoy that we have a little tribe going. But first and foremost, uh, priority has to be bringing you guys. Um, guests and content. So that's kind of what we're aiming for in 2021. Um, you know, well, I'll take this opportunity to say that, you know, we're only a couple of years into the podcast. There's still a lot of trial and error at this point. Um, so you'd still have a few days to get the merch if you want it. But yeah, we're going to try it. We're going to try this year. We're going to try just doing it for a few months of, of the year and we'll see how that goes. Um, might, might change, might change again after that. Um, you know, it's just, we'll see how it goes, guys. I'm, I'm learning a lot through this process of doing the podcast. I'm, I appreciate your patience as you bear with me as, um, you know, as we figure things out. Um, all right. And you can find that at vsomstore.com, uh, also linked in the show notes. And also everything's linked up at Veteran State of Mind on social media. Uh, I want to say a big thank you to Combat Fuel for not only supporting this podcast, but also my juicy gains. I got to be honest, my, my, I, I find it a lot easier to train when I'm at the gym motivation-wise especially a power zone gym in Wrexham, shout out to them. Um, it's a lot harder for me to get in the zone at home because, well, my desk's just round the corner and, you know, it kind of distracts me, just dragging me into it with my mind. Um, and I take the old scoop of pre-workout from Combat Fuel and away to the races. We go, I use their pre-workout, their pump-up, the delicious vegan protein, and I am partial to the Mountain Joe bars that they keep in stock. Uh, also, if you're in the Salisbury Plain area, guys, which I'm sure a lot of you are, uh, Combat Fuel have a gym in Andover. So it's a great space with great people. If you're down there, go and have a sesh with them. Um, as at time of recording this, you lot weren't in lockdown. But who knows? Who knows what the government is doing this month? But this isn't a ransom ban, so I'm going to move on. All right, on to today's guest. This is an impressive biography. Giles Christian's first historical novels were the acclaimed and best-selling Raven Viking trilogy, Blood Eye, Sons of Thunder, and Odin's Wolves. For his next series, he drew on a long-held fascination with the English Civil War to chart the fortunes of a family divided by this brutal conflict in the bleeding land and brother's fury. I tell you what, Giles knows how to name a book. Giles also co-wrote Wilbur Smith's number one bestseller, Golden Lion, In God of Vengeance, A Times Book of the Year, Winter's Fire and the Historical Writers Association Gold Crown shortlisted Wings of the Storm, he returned to the world of the Vikings to tell the story of Sigurd and his celebrated fictional fellowship. Lancelot was published to great acclaim and hit the Times bestseller charts at number three. It was also a Sunday Times bestseller. His new novel, Camelot, is out now. I would like to add to that that Giles is a top bloke. It was helped me in my own writing career uh, and it was an absolute pleasure to talk to him today. He really is a great bloke, absolutely fascinating. So let's get to him. Please give a very warm welcome to Mr. Giles Christian. Giles, welcome to the podcast, mate. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, thanks. Thanks for having me on. You're welcome, buddy. I wanted to do it for a while. Um, I was hoping at some point that you, uh, you, me and Dan Mills would be able to have a bit of a freeway. 
um, and, and have a chat. But hopefully we can still get, we'll still be able to do that in the future if we're not all dead in 10, 20, whatever's coming with 2021. But uh, how's your year going? Because we're, we're getting towards the end of the year. It'll be the end of the year by the time this goes out. Have you had a, a good year or a bad one? Or how has things been going? Well, I don't really want to say I've enjoyed lockdown, but there are elements of it that I, that I clearly have enjoyed. I, I think um, I'm pretty antisocial. So <laughs> for me, um, having the perfect excuse not to go out and see people and meet people has been been stellar. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's funny, isn't it? Because I'm, I'm like, ah, oh, fuck lockdown. We should be able to go out. And then um, I went for a walk, you know, earlier. My mum was like, I was a walk. I was like, great, didn't see anyone. So <laughs> as much as I want lockdown to end, I kind of want it to end on my terms where I still don't see people for like 90% of the time. That'd be great. Yeah, you seem dead sociable to me. You're always talking to people. I mean, obviously, you, you do this job for a start. On my on my, on my own terms, though, mate. Like, right. I like seeing... Like if someone if I if I go for a walk and someone dares be walking on the same path as me when I'm yeah. when I'm going out for my time of solitude then like yeah it's uh, I, I I do miss I miss clubs and stuff mate and I miss actually you know what let's get your opinion on this because we were having a chat with a a guest yesterday and he was saying that he feels it's really important for blokes especially to be able to get together get rowdy have blowouts like how do you feel about that. That, I do miss that for sure. Uh, and, you know, when you when you can't go to the pub, I'm not a big, I don't go to the pub a lot anyway because I've got two young kids and I basically my wife would um, chop my knackers off if I was, <laughs> you know, if I, I'm just not that kind of, you know, I, I'm not that kind of family man because I couldn't get away with it. But I do miss a proper pub poured pint because it's not the same out of a bottle at home, is it? Yeah, I think it's, uh, there's something... I love about these little clusters of groups of people that you get when you're in a pub. It's like, because the thing is, when you go to a pub, yeah, you are only probably talking to the couple of mates that you went in there with until so you get smashed and you start hitting on everyone else. And But, like, I I, I love that hubbub of of all different people in there. And, like, that, like I'm, I'm sure you're probably the same as me on this one. I think if you're an author, you're probably a people watcher. Yeah, for sure. So that element has been taken away. Like I really miss. Um, I was talking about it, talking with my agent about this the other day because it was like we're both saying because we're both working from home. It's great in one way, but if you're an author, you are probably these two things. You're probably a people watcher, and you're probably quite introspective anyway. So when you take away the element of people watching, the only person you have to people watch with is yourself. And that amount of introspection then can be like, all right, I'd like a break from myself, please, at this point. Oh, there's no there's no doubt about it that what we do as a job is pretty unhealthy. I mean, it's physically unhealthy. <laughs> you know, I hate the fact that, I, that my job involves just sitting down, looking at a screen all day long. I, there's something kind of perverted about that, especially when you're writing action books you feel like an absolute fraud you know i'm writing all this heroic stuff as i'm sitting nice and toasty in my uh my, my office with a nice cup of coffee <laughs> well you can come and write in my house if you want to get into the into the winter scenes mate because it's fucking baltic <laughs> but like no you, you you're dead right though so have you ever tried writing at a standing desk yeah i did um i did a book called uh god of vengeance standing up and then the sequel to that, I just had um, a little boy, and he just didn't sleep. And and we were, I was, <laughs> I was starting the day sort of dead. Uh, so I couldn't, I couldn't do that book standing up. It just wouldn't have been possible. How, how did you, how did you find it though? Because this, this might sound weird to to listeners that haven't written or anything, but there's this sensation I get when you're in a seat. It's almost like being in like the cockpit of a plane where you kind of you pull your cabin and your canopy down and you're locked in. I find it very hard to like lock in like that when I'm standing up. Is that something you felt? Or? 
I think it was probably a good way for me to write because I'm very, um, I, I actually can't sit still for very long at all. So I'll write a paragraph and then I'm up and wandering about and I come and sit down again. And if I write, if I write a nice line, I reward myself by wandering off and checking, checking Twitter and whatever. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I, I, if you actually, you, you know, I'm not really at my desk in the chair for any length of time without getting up and moving around. I think when I did that book, Standing Up, I kind of used it as a bit of a um, PR thing, really, because people were interested in it. And I kind of said to people that it, I think it helped imbue the narrative with a bit of energy because I wasn't just sitting there on my ass and I was moving about and I was gesticulating a bit more as I was writing because I was standing up. And I, I, I think some of that probably is a bit true. Yeah. It's, it's, no, a full I, on, it's a full-on book. It's a full-on book and it's absolutely full of action. So maybe it, maybe it did help. I think so, mate. Like, it's, like you said, there is this element to it of, you know, if you're sitting... If you're sitting down all day and if you're comfortable all day and you're warm all day, how can you really get into the mind of a character who is on his third day with no sleep crossing a mountain in the fucking howling rain? I do think that you have to, not necessarily at that moment, like I'm not saying you got Ben Nevis with your laptop, but there does need to come a moment where you are, you know, I think you do need to, to put yourself out there into some kind of misery at some point. I want to take it back though, mate, into where, like, I want, I'm interested to know where your kind of interest in, in all this stuff came from, you know, to begin with. Is this something that you, did you used to read a lot as a kid? I didn't read at all as a kid. I didn't read a book until I was um, about 15. Not for pleasure, innit? Not for pleasure. Not not one that I'd chosen to read, you know? So I was um, incredibly a late starter. Yeah, I had a glandular fever at school and I was off school for five weeks or something ridiculous and um, obviously annoying my mum and just being bored out of my brain and she bought me a, a novel, a fantasy novel called Crystal Shard by R.A. Salvatore and um, and it was the first book I sort of got my hands on and, and it had a, you know, it was one of these typical fancy books on the front was there was a barbarian, an elf, a, <laughs> a, dwar- a dwarf, probably a wizard or something as well. And probably so probably some were big tits too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it wasn't that kind of book. It, and it, it blew me away. And, and that's really where my interest in, in the written word started. So it was pretty, it was, it was all for kissing that wrong girl when I was about, you know, kind of about 14, 15 and getting glandular fever. So thank you very much. Yeah. Well, it could be kissing the wrong girl often ends up in prison for a lot of people, mate. So you did pretty well out of this when you got a career from it. Um, so what about, what about kind of, um, family? Did you, have family who were interested in in military history or were in fact in the military themselves no not not at all as a kid i'd always wanted to i'd always wanted to join the army i remember writing when i was about eight writing a letter to um I wanted to be in the household cavalry because they had armor, you see. Oh, so, no. Yeah, but they had armor. They had all this sh- <laughs> the shiny armor. So I thought, I get a horse and a sword. And I think that's the point. I was always interested in historical uh, yeah. <laughs> historical stuff. Um, but um, no, it wasn't to be. I did the CCF at school and really enjoyed that. But I was in the engineers and we didn't really do anything apart from just um, make obstacle courses and um, and and, and uh yeah, just hang about behind the sheds, really, uh, making stuff. But but it was while well, the while well, the ad inf were marching up and down, so we we thought we were quite lucky, really. <laughs> so where 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 did the point come where you kind of diverted from the fantasy kind of books into the more historical um, the historical side of things? So I I reckon. Well, I didn't actually read a lot of fantasy. I read Terry Brooks, I suppose, and, and as I mentioned, R. A. Salvatore and uh, Lord of the Rings, obviously, and then. 
I don't know whether it was Bernard Cornwall and the Sharp books that kind of got got me into historical fiction. And then I, I read his um, Arthurian books, which uh, which were kind of quite seminal for me. Um, but I, I was actually writing a thriller at the time that I got my first publishing deal. So I got Raven Blood Eye. I was living in New York. Raven Blood Eye was on submission via my a New York agent at the time. And I couldn't get a deal in the States for it because, you know, they... I kept, they kept telling me that history just doesn't, you know, historical fiction, just there was no market for it in the States. So I was getting really frustrated. And then I, on a trip back to London, I approached a, another agent, a uh, literary agent in London, and um, they took me on and got a deal for Raven Blood Eye within weeks with, um, well, what's now Penguin Random House. Um, but while I was, while that book was on submission, I started writing a thriller set in the Arctic, and um, which I'm actually now started to write for, for real. So... Yeah, <laughs> kind of came came back round about fifteen years later. Okay, well, I can't gloss over the fact that what you what were you doing in New York? So uh, we I worked for a company. while well, my wife worked for 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 the company, setting up um, a film a movie marketing company, movie movie trailers and posters. And she was asked to go and set up a branch of that company, which was a London based company in New York. So I went over with her, of course. Um, we weren't married at the time, but we uh, we went over and set up this office, and I sort of did slogans for their film posters and taglines. And oh, nice. I, yeah, I also set up a little business making music for the film trailers. So what had happened is the studio, you, the, the guys in the, the um, edit suites would be cutting a film trailer, and they'd want to use they'd just choose the music they want to use basically to make the best trailer, and they'd choose like a, I don't know, like a. Um, just some very very expensive rock rock music or whatever and then i'd say well yeah um how much are the rights going to cost you for that and then they'd go to the publishing house and it would be costing many tens of thousands of pounds to use that Jimi hendrix bit of bit of music and i'd say well i can probably make something that sits that kind of evokes a similar mood that's clever so how, how did that go so that was great. So I worked with all sorts of different musicians and uh, did that for a while. But really, I was just in the in this, this massive warehouse, creative warehouse apartment in New York, working on my first novel. Really, that's pretty cool, dude. That's a pretty cool thing to do. To 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 be in like one of those spaces in New York, really. Like, like you must have felt the part. It was unbelievable. It really was unbelievable. Yeah. And we had these, um, it was a massive, massive building and it was really cold in the winter because uh, w- when we got there, it was just a shell. And we had a soup, the super of the building was a, a guy called, um, well, there was two guys, Willie and Harold, these really, really old old dudes. And um, Harold had fought in Vietnam. So I used to get some good, good get some good stories out of him. And then um, one day we, we could hear them up on the roof and we'd complained about the rats. There was rats everywhere up on the roof. They'd, we put these tarpaulins over the skylights to keep some of the heat in. Um, and then we went up there to sort of lift them up in the spring and there was rats just ran out everywhere. <laughs> so the supers went up there and then we could just hear them. They're, like, they're in, seven, in the 70s and 80s. We could hear them running around with spades up there, sort of splatting these rats. Jesus Christ. What was um, what was New York like at that time as, as a gen- in general? We absolutely loved it. I just thought it was exhilarating. It was it was a sensory overload. It was it was so much fun. It was so much easier to meet people and kind of go out with people rather than in London. It takes you you know you can't just spontaneously say I'm going to meet you down in some some bar or whatever. But in in Manhattan you can do that. It's, it was great fun. Too much fun actually. In the end, I think there's there's there's, some, there's something about those kind of cities though where. 
Because one of the things you get in America, which I think is so cool, and definitely in places like New York and LA, is not only if you, I mean, yeah, you've got people moving from all over the world, but in America, more than so than in the UK, it's very normal for people to go and work in totally different parts of the country than they were brought up in. And I think America has more of a culture of if you start talking to someone at a bar, they're not like, oh, you want to fight, do you? It's like, no, I'm trying to just have a conversation. They, ha- they have that culture, right? That was a massive culture shock for me because I grew up in a small market town in, in the Midlands, um, in Luff- you know, Loughborough and Leicester. And every Friday night when I went out as a kid, we'd get into a rumble. It was just what, it was just what happened, it, all, you know, almost every week for, for, for a few years. And in New York, there was just no trouble at all. I don't know whether it was a sort of zero, zero tolerance policy or whatever, but it worked because um, I never saw, in three years of living there, I never saw any trouble at all, any trouble. And what, what part of town were you in? Well, we were in Soho. We were just, 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 off, uh, just off Little Italy. We were on Elizabeth and Spring, actually. Um, and it was, yeah, it was beautiful. Loved it. It was sort of, Did you do much? It was sort of bohemian. Sorry, it, sorry it, was, it was kind of a bohemian place as well. It was everyone had their own style, and it was, and it was really noticeable because you know my my wife would say, back home in the UK, when there's a fashion that comes out, if it's in Topshop or whatever, everyone's wearing the same thing. But in New York, there was everyone seemed to just be indivi- an individual and just kind of do whatever they wanted to do, and it was. It was, I thought it was really cool. And did, did you get much around the States in, in general? No, not really. No, no. when we were there, we, we sort of pretty much pretty much stayed there, uh, apart from coming back to London. I think that can be a thing with, with cities. Like um, It's definitely what happened to me when I was in LA. I w- spent a lot of time in LA, but then I was like, oh shit, I've actually not seen any of the rest of the, the country. Because, uh, well, you know yourself, in New York, going to different parts of the city, is that's like what it feels like to go out to a different part of the country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We went upstate, and that was great fun. And it was amazing how different New York upstate is. Uh, you, don't, you don't have to go very far, and you're in the middle of nowhere, aren't you? It's, it's, it's just surprising when you fly into that part of the, the world as well. I was surprised at how much, gre- how much greenery there is. Mm, yeah, absolutely, yeah. But we went to LA last year, and um, that was... That that seemed to have changed. You, I think you go to LA quite a bit, don't you? But well, not but, so much anymore, mate. To be honest, because it has changed. But yeah, it's... We, we went with the kids, and um, we, it was it was really sad. It just we just saw came across so many guys absolutely out of it on drugs, and just on every street corner we were we were crossing the road, and it it really felt like it had changed since we went a few years ago. Yeah, I mean, I used to be one of those guys out of it on drugs, but I did it in a club like a cool person. <laughs> and you had both shoes on. <laughs> yeah, and I hadn't shit myself yet. Um, but no, it's uh, it, I, I started going out there a lot in 2012, and I've seen a massive, like, I've seen a big change. And I think maybe I, saw it, I see it more because I go back every three months, go back. Whereas, yeah. like, if you're living there, it's the same as anything else. If it's a gradual thing, you don't notice so much. But, yeah, it's... Um, it's not somewhere I want to live anymore, unless obviously you give me a giant mansion up in the hills. But that, that just, you know, that goes for that goes for anything, doesn't it? If you have a big mansion in the hills, then it's fine. But just gen, <laughs> gen, general, most people in LA, contrary to popular belief, do not live in big houses in the hills. Yeah, you, you one with those fires. Wow, yeah. But yeah, I mean, that's when you just get the peasants to come in. You go to your other house in the other part of the country and get some peasants to come and move all your stuff out, mate. You are, you know, you haven't look, looked into this clearly, mate. You just need more peasants, basically. But no, living living in LA on the street level as in on the street level i mean apartments and stuff you know like you said mate you're walking outside there's needles everywhere you're a father you know what you want to raise your kids around um because it's it is dangerous and i'm not saying it's dangerous as in like you know compared to the period that you and i write about dangerous but 
you know, it's definitely more danger than you need to have your family in. So it's it's a shame, mate, because both LA and New York, I think, are taking it. I think they're in a period now that they're going to be taking a bit of a, a nosedive. Um, it's like financially, um, California's pretty fucked. Um, New York, obviously, is like I heard a statistic earlier that 50% of the restaurants, I mean, like, how cool is it in New York that you can just wander and just find these amazing places to eat and stuff? Yeah, it's, it's absolutely incredible. A friend of mine is, was, has been living there for 20 years and he's just moved back now, like a couple of weeks ago, to my neck of the woods. And he's got to get used to the fact that if you want to go out for dinner, you've got to, you've got to book it. You've got to book it. And, and you, if it's a takeaway, even, you've got to sort of, they'll tell you, well, come in an hour or something. Whereas, obviously, in New York, the world is your oyster. It's unbelievable, the choice of restaurants and bars and just, yeah. It's, it's, it's and, we're, and we're not talking fancy-pancy. If people think me and Giles are talking about fancy restaurants here, not at all. Literally, you just turn down an alleyway and it could just be like, um, my mate took me to this Peruvian restaurant once and it was just this quite a tiny little place, like five five tables. Oh, my God, mate, one of the best meals I've had in my life. And and they're everywhere. Those little places are just everywhere it's um it's 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 a really amazing place for you know because i've always i'm always a big believer if you want to get people to be less racist and be more tolerant of other cultures give them some food from another culture it's a, yeah yeah it's a good point yeah, yeah but like you know go into those restaurants sit there experience it there's a bit of the music on in the background i think it's great as well because those the thing is about you and i could go to a mexican restaurant right now in britain you ain't hearing anyone speaking Spanish in there or there's no Mexicans in there, you know. But when you go to those restaurants in London or, or sorry, in New York, you're hearing the languages as well. It's brilliant. It's like a totally immersive um, experience. But while we're on the subject of cultures, how did you uh, how did you end up falling on the the, the Vikings as a as because your first your first series was Vikings, right? With the historical stuff. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my mum's Norwegian, so um, I'd spent a lot of time growing up in and around the fjords um, on the west coast of Nor- on the west coast of Norway. So um, it's pretty easy when you're out on a boat fishing for your dinner. It's pretty <laughs> easy to imagine a, a long boat coming wow. down the fjord and Kirk Douglas dancing on the oars. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> so it was pretty. Um, and I went for I went on a years later. I went on a stag do with my brother. It was my brother's stag do, and we went to. Um, Oslo and went to the Viking Ship Museum and looked at the two incredible Viking ships that you can go and physically touch. You're not supposed to, but obviously you have to. <laughs> and, and and it was and, and I was with a bunch of lads having a pretty decent time. Obviously cultural as well. And, and I and I looked around and and just I started putting them on this longboat, the, the different characters, and just thinking this is basically what it was like. It was the base. The Vikings were basically on a stag do, just with a bit more, <laughs> just with a bit more depth. <laughs> every, every, everything else was pretty, pretty sim- similar. It, it's certainly an appealing thing for a young man, though, isn't it? The Viking way of life. Because uh, one of the things I always think about is freedom. You know, I think who are the most free people that have ever lived? And I think you got the strong cases is for Vikings and for Native Americans in, um, you know, the uh, like on the tribal plains or. Um, you, you, you can make an argument that those guys, because you could kind of come and go as you wanted. Right, we're going to go at war. I don't want to come. All right, no worries. Stay here, do some farming. All right, cool. Like, there was no no pressing. Like, you weren't forced into the army like you were in, in, in a lot of the other places. You want to go and be a warrior? Go and be a warrior. Oh, I'm done being a warrior now. That's cool, too. You know, it's it's pretty amazing, isn't it, the freedom they had. Yeah, and if you're, if you're a decent warrior and you get lucky and you can bring back enough swag that you don't have to go again, 
You so, probably wouldn't. Can, I think people have obviously people have conceived notion now about what Vikings Vikings are. But you can, can you talk a bit more in bigger picture about that that kind of period and 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 who these who, who these kind of people were that we see so much we see so much of them in TV and like obviously the old thing with the horned helmets. But I think attitudes have changed towards that, haven't they? Yeah, there seems to be a real clampdown on people mentioning the horned helmets. <laughs> people get very upset about it, which is yeah. which is just as well because obviously we all know that they didn't wear horned helmets, and in a in a combat situation, it'd be a pretty stupid thing to do. <laughs> For a start, it'd probably funnel any blade that was going to miss you down onto <laughs> down onto your head. So yeah, it doesn't really work in practical terms, <laughs> but. Um, I just think there is a, there's it's a mythology about them. That's what we like because really, were they that much different from the Saxons who you know invaded these lands, these shores, um, you know, uh, before you know, a few hundred years before that? Really, not really that different. Were they just bun- boatloads of warriors out on the uh, pillage? But um, there's something about the Vikings, and I think that's just because of their well, their, their ships for a start. I think that's their ultimate weapon, isn't it? And they're so beautiful. So it just so happens that their craft and their war coincides and sort of complements each other in, a, in a, an incredible way. So this ship that they, they clinker built ships, which kind of plowed through most of the North Atlantic with, they happen to be beautiful things at the same time. And I think there's a lot to admire in that. And also just the balls that it takes to get in an open, an open clinker built boat and sail well as far as you want basically I, I have a feeling that one of the reasons it's kind of stuck in our national conscience so much is because this this idea of them turning up and raiding um raiding cathed- uh, cath- you know uh, monasteries and and they were yeah they were pagan you know and it was and i think that that i think if it would been christians coming over and they hadn't been going after monasteries and stuff it wouldn't have been such a thing but you know, because it's very hard for us now to think of religion in the terms that people used to think about it. Like now, now it's kind of like, oh, I think, I'm, right? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm on my deathbed now. I suppose I better make my peace with God. Well, it's not a part of our daily life most of the time. You know, for me, it was like, get to Afghanistan. God, are you there? Right, I'm checking in, and then a tour's finished. So I'm like, oh, cheers, bye. <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> but I, I think that's maybe why it's kind of passed down because it was a, an, a, a, it was a real threat to the faith, which was, you know, which was more important than anything else. For yeah, and the only people that could write about what the Vikings were up to were the monks who were being pillaged pillaged and murdered so it was a pretty one-sided story but but i have a theory that actually the monks kind of going on about the vikings was the best bit of pr that the vikings could have because you know if you if if by, by people hearing about um brother so-and-so has just had his head chopped off last week down at that monastery down there like the next time you see any vikings you're just going to run away <laughs> So like it, it, I'm sure it made their job easier in many ways, but you can't really blame them for 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 sort of looting a monastery that's that happens to be perched on the edge of the land on the edge of the land right by <laughs> right by the sea road, um, and it's got and it's full of treasure and it's guarded by men in skirts. I mean, what's not to love if you're a Viking? I'm super jealous of it, mate. Honestly, I think it's very 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 unfair that we're not allowed to do any pillaging anymore. Um, but no, it's like you said, it's absolutely these, these monasteries, you know, they were just be- basically begging to be robbed. <laughs> and also there is a the theory that some of these raids were like a preemptive strike against, um, against Charlemagne, who was, uh, obviously 
Charlemagne was trying to destroy all pagans and, and slaughtering them in their their many thousands. Um, so there is a theory that the Viking Age was kind of a sort of a, a, a preemptive strike against this Christian empire that was swelling and trying to swallow up everything. You know what? I like that spin on things because, um, yeah, I, I, I think, um, we like you said, we're looking at it from the point of view of, like you said, all the all the documents like look we can't we can't trust what we get told now and we've got sources all over the place so basically the the history that's being passed down to us is a uh history from one side who have got a vested interest in saying that the other side were bastards yeah total one side of the story yeah and the, and the vikings are just all they left were like the well their culture for a start but also like a you know the old rune stone here that's like in scandinavia sticking out the ground and it just says sven went across the sea and never came back <laughs> that's, that's about that's about all they what they say about it classic sven he's yeah. <laughs> always up to stuff like that but um i find like so right right now i'm researching um I say research it because there's not really much to research, and that's kind of my point. Um, there's this four-year war that occurs in the Balkans with the Romans. There's a couple of paragraphs about it from Cassius Dio, I think, was wrote it about 200 years later. And then there's one uh, primary source who was around at the time. So, you know, knowing now, but who, by the way, wrote about it 30 years later... I know I've already forgotten half my stuff that I did in Afghanistan. So, and I've I've definitely forgotten three quarters of the stuff that I did in Iraq. So, I'm not fully trusting this guy about his knowledge of what happened 30 years earlier. Um, and um, especially considering how much lead poisoning he probably had at this point. So, and then I've got, and then uh, that is the the source at the time. So, you know, I, I, what I've kind of come to my conclusion with um, with research now is. Actually, I'm going to look at what you've got to say, and then I'm going to think, well, what what makes sense to me that would have happened during this period? Do you have the same kind of thing with, with Vikings? Yeah, mate. Re- 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 like to think of research as a failure of the imagination. <laughs> <laughs> Stealing but, that one. Yeah, uh, but it's, um, no, it's, that is why I write about the Vikings, because I, it, it, you don't let the facts get in the way of the story. And that's the point. I think when you start writing historical fiction, certainly when I started, so the first novel I wrote that didn't get published was set during the First Crusade. And I did so much research on it. I got a diploma in it and bought all the books. And um, and I think I ended up putting it all the kind of boring stuff in the novel. And, and I realised from writing that book that that's not what it's about. It's about the story and, and, and should only be about the story if you're writing fiction. And the thing about the Vikings is there really isn't much historical stuff to go on. And like you say, that the, the kind of the records written by monks or whatever, are, well, you know, one-sided and who cares? And that's that's probably boring as well. So you, so let's tell it from the Vikings' perspective and try and get into the mindset of the Vikings. And and that's the, the danger is now you get people saying, um, I had a, a big discussion on Facebook um, recently that I was drawn, my attention was drawn to it because a character in my first Viking book went on a raid um, and he, he raped somebody because that's what they were getting up to in the book. And um, I got absolutely slaughtered by by a few people for this. But it just seemed to me that why would my character, just because he happens to be the hero of my book, should I be putting my sort of 21st century morals yeah onto that character and have him as the only one who didn't get involved in it. It's just so unrealistic. Yeah. That, that, um, 
So, you know, but that's that's the only downside, really, of, of uh, writing that kind of really close to the bone stuff. Yeah, the rape, the rape one's an interesting one, mate, because um, the fact is it happened the majority of times there. But the way I kind of get around that is that I have other people doing the raping, but my guy doesn't because I always think that there's always people that are contra- contrary to the norm at some points. But I do think that it's equally like you should be able to have a character at that eight, at that end doing it. I, um, I have a similar kind of one with the you know, um, with the mental health side of things, because um, I, I think that there are people, cause some, some people say, oh, you wouldn't get people having mental health problems with, with war back then because it was happening everywhere. But I'm like, well, if you look at Mexico, where there's constant violence, there's loads of mental health problems. And I think one of the things people get confused is they think PTSD means crying in the shower and then, um, you know, crying in the shower and, 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 and not being able to leave your house, which can be it for some people. But for some people, PTSD is overreacting with anger, which to me, would that would that would sum up the ancient world pretty well. <laughs> you know, yeah, it It's like, so if you get like, like, yeah, your PTSD might actually work in your favor. If what works in your favor is beating people and killing people, having PTSD would not be a bad thing. So, but it would still be there. Maybe berserkers then were guys suffering with PTSD. Well, I think they got on the sesh pretty, pretty hard as well. Didn't they with the, was it, was it the, them that used the mushrooms? Yeah, apparently. Yeah. I think you and me need to research that one, mate do accurate do some accurate research um but no i just i just think that like this this idea that everybody in a certain period acted a certain way it's like well no because if nobody act differently when we never change as you know there's always someone that's going well what about doing this or what about doing that right now like there's well, there's millions of opi- different opinions around us um I can't, I just can't see that it wouldn't, you know, like, and there's, yes, there's certain trends that are something that most people prescribe to. And I'm sure it would have been the same back then, but just this idea that everybody would have thought the same way at these periods. I just think, well, that's just not people. I agree with you because the way people think hasn't changed, has it? Not, not ever really. So you still love people you still love your family and you still you know you still love your your friends that you're fighting with and and you still have those really really strong relationships whether whether we're talking 5000 years ago or, or or this week and if bad horrible stuff happens to those people of course it would have affected them mentally i mean i think that's just it's, it's got to have happened may i've had people suggest that it didn't and I'm like, you're fucking mental. If that, if that was the case, why would there be such, like, the burial rites have always been a massive thing. In fact, we're probably we're probably the culture that gives the least fucks about burying people in all of human history. People have always put so much emphasis on burial rites and the afterlife as well, because I think they wanted to know that you go to a better place. Um and so when people are like, oh, well, they had high infant mortality, so they just weren't bothered by death. I'm like, are you fucking mad? Like, of course it would have bothered them. They weren't happy. Oh, another baby death, no dramas, just fucking, like, it used to, like, if you go back, because, I mean, there was high infant mortality up until very recently, and there still is in a lot of parts of the world. You just look at the, you know, we have a lot of, the, there's a lot of documentation on how people dealt with infant mortality in the last couple of hundred years. Nobody's fucking doing cartwheels when they lose the baby. I think, no, I think you're right, mate. I agree with you. Yeah, well, I just, I, I think one of the things, we're kind of going off of a bit of rant here because this is something I've been thinking, thinking about a lot, is, um, you know, we, and this is, in broader sense, we have this 
tendency as human beings to think that we are special and our period of humanity is we're different to everybody else and bad things aren't going to happen to us and we've passed this and we've surpassed that and everyone that lived in the past was a bastard but we're great and I just think that that's it's like that's like a symptom of the bigger problem is and um and I know that there's people um who you know obviously think the same way that we do because I see it in their writing but then there's other people I'm thinking I'm like you're fucking mad like you're mad mate like you're just you they it's it's um it's the stereotypes i suppose that come through of like yeah they they there's these warriors and they didn't care about loss and they didn't care about this and they didn't care about that and they were different and they were it's almost like the whole roman thing of their barbarians and we are the you know the enlightened Ooh. ones yeah so i don't really have a question on that mate i was just ranting <laughs> but, so let's go so with the viking thing then who are some of your favorite historical characters from that period because uh, like you said there's not that much really kind of passed down but are there any ones that you have heard of who uh, who you think sound like good blokes well uh, harold hardrada was the man as far as i'm concerned uh, his his life was just extraordinary you know he obviously he he, he died just prior to the, the battle of hastings and he was the third man of that year and he launched his last roll of the dice to try and seize the english crown and obviously fought up at Stamford bridge and and lost and died with his with his household warriors all around him um they were caught in the lounging in the sun without their armor on and they were caught quick by surprise and and uh, it was still a very close run battle but his life really was extraordinary because he was one of the most well traveled men of his of the age and he'd lived a, a life of, of co- almost constant warfare since since he was a teenager, um, and obviously he became the the leader of the emperor's Byzantine guard and the, the, you know the Varangian guard and f- sort of uh, had an affair with a princess and yeah, it was it was a mercenary and he had his own warriors who who got the those warriors in Constantinople got the nickname the emperor's wineskins because they were they were said to drink a lot <laughs> but um, yeah he's he, and he was a giant as well he was a giant of a man and he went down swinging and i just think yeah he's a, we, we should know more about him his life was so cool he was a christian as it happened he died a christian but um well i like to think that he got a place in valhalla anyway yeah, mate. You know what's really interesting is, um, and this is one that I want anyone that's serving in the military to take note of: is his life was war, and he still got caught slipping at the end. Yeah, good point. Yeah, I mean, you know, well, probably because he was pissed by the sounds of it, <laughs> from, from, from what you're saying. Um, but no, I think that's a great point. Like, um, it doesn't matter how many tours you've done, doesn't matter how many battles you fought. If you slip in one day. Then it could be the other guy's first fight, but like if you're if you're complacent, like complacency kills. And at that battle, there was the the legend of the one Viking who stood on the bridge and just wouldn't let any of the the English get across the bridge, and he stood there with an axe. and And this account actually comes from the English side, so we assume it's true because they talk about this one Norse warrior that stood there with his axe and just kept taking people down one after another after another. And I'd like to write something about him. I want to know what his story was. You know, I, I, like when we think about Vikings, you now we think about like these massive, massive dudes and stuff. Well, like what what kind of size were these blokes? They're pretty much our pretty much our size, as far as I'm aware. Maybe a little bit shorter, but um, but not much. It's not like people always imagine that, because at that time they were eating good food and they were the popular 
you know, the populations in Norway were, well, there was no one there. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you weren't, it wasn't, it wasn't like the industrial revolution or whatever, just before when everyone's was fighting for food and you're eating rubbish and, uh, you know, these people were living off good food, plenty of fish and, and meat and vegetables and everything else. So there's no reason why they couldn't, they couldn't grow pretty big and gnarly. Yeah. So, they, so we're talking about like muscular strong, cause like to the, cause I mean the, the weight of kit that they have to carry, like what kind of like, do, like, um, what kind of equipment and kit and stuff are these guys carrying? Well, in the later period, in the period of, of Harold Hardrada, they they are wearing male male shirts and and his uh, and yeah, he had a name for his. He named it. Um, yeah, what was it called? Emma or something? It was it was really <laughs> long. It was a famously uh, famously long sort of suit of mail, um, helmets, uh, shield, axe. Yeah, um, you know obviously the sword yeah some heavy heavy equipment all in all because I, I think there's about a, a max of weight that people can carry and be effective because uh I, I think when I was looking into like what a hoplite carried by the time you add up all the weight of their arms and armor it's about the same as what a squaddy gets now you know it's um the same at the end of the day it's there's only so much like it might be com- more comfortable now you know you might have more straps although i've always believed as well that guys well the guys back in then are not going to go oh my kit's uncomfortable i'm not going to try and do anything about it like the individuals would find ways of 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 taking like w- of using strapping and stuff to take that off and um i think that's something that we that there's kind of like you said before, mate, the research thing, I can't remember exactly what you said, but the lack of imagination, basically. There's definitely that, I feel, in history that we quite go, this is what they do and this is how they do it. And I'm thinking, people are individual. I don't buy this thing that, like, they, these guys would not be going out. And there is evidence of it with the Romans that, you know, you got the guys, they find they used to have the, you know, the belts that they'd have the swords on and guys would basically get these little plates stitched into there and stuff, which was, a, you know, a way of making your gear cool in the same way as today. And I think being an individual has always been a part of being human. Yeah, well, they they, they did find those Viking skulls um, in a mass grave that are, where they saw that they'd filed the teeth. Um, and they didn't know why they'd done it, but they assumed it was to just, for the same reason, I suppose, that people might get tattoos or whatever just to be just to sort of be individual maybe to maybe to scare scare their enemies we don't really know but they had yeah they had these filed teeth and it showed that it probably was quite painful to do that to yourself um, slap a disclaimer on this do not try filing your teeth at home I know we have some infantrymen listening who are like oh, that sounds badass I'm going to file my teeth mind you it, it didn't, it didn't uh, help I, them though because they, they obviously ended up in a mass grave anyway so with their yeah, head stopped off yeah <laughs> maybe that was the next step they were like look what i'm going to do next um what, what about tattoos did the vikings have tattoos we, we we believe that they did yes but we obviously there's just you don't you don't find evidence of it clearly mm. but um we we believe yeah. they did they painted everything else they, they the viking world was actually full of color and um that's something else we don't really see much of but i did some i'm working on a viking video game and um the, the studio that that are designing the game they're trying to get it really quite historically accurate so they asked me to research colors uh the viking colors really and this is something i hadn't really done for my novels and um so i did and it and and you can sort of you can look at online you can look at the color palette of the the colors that were available in the viking world and um i I also rode a, a viking ship a replica viking ship a few years back and they painted that in the same colors that that were available in and it did show what a colourful world it was, actually. 
And why wouldn't it be? You know, like you're saying, people like to be flamboyant. People like to get noticed. And if you're, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's always a sign of, you know, conspicuous consumption. Whether you've got a, a sword or a nice piece of armor or whatever, or you've painted, you've painted your house or whatever it is. But it's a way of. It's a way of standing out and sort of showing yourself to be maybe cut above the rest. Absolutely, mate. Like all these Roman buildings that people see, you go to Rome and you see all these things. They they weren't sandstone color; they were painted. Everything was painted. Mm. And, and I, statues as well. Yeah, right? and I think it's funny though, isn't it? Because we look at them now and we're like, oh well, we want to see these. Like we want to look at these old historical buildings. I'm like, well, why are we looking at them in the way that they weren't? Like that, mm. that would be like now, you know, you come and have a look at somebody's house and you've stripped away the outs, like you've stripped away the outer layer of the house. It's like, why are we like, it just wouldn't, it's not what they lived in. It's not how it was then. So why do we look at it as just a sandstone building? I, I'm not, I never really kind of understood that. Yeah. So when we were kids and you saw a Roman statue and you, it was kind of white marble looking and that, and that was it. And that's the way we thought they were. And, and now we, now we know that they were painted and the fl- the skin, the faces were painted skin color and the, you know, and it's, it's, and it's, you see it in a totally different, when you see those reenact, you know, when they, when they, when they show what it would have looked like, it, it's kind of mind blowing. It looks wrong because it's not what we're, <laughs> it's not what we expect. Yeah. But, but that's, that's kind of like full, full stop really is that we have like, even like the second world war, which was not long ago at all. We see black and white images um, and we're like, oh, Second World War must have been a horrible fighting a war in black and white. Yeah. Well, it wasn't. It was just as vivid as what you're seeing right now. Yeah. And I've always, I, and it's hard to get your head like, it's hard to think that the guys that were in Battle of Monte Cassino were not fighting in black and white. Everything was vivid colors for them. It's really hard to get your head around though. Yeah, I'm always the same. Yeah. When you see those photographs where they show the building as it was, in in world war Two and as it is now and that one of the pictures is black oh, yeah. and white and but really the building looks exactly the same it's it is incredible i love that stuff because even saving private ryan and those kind of realistic you know quote-unquote movies they have a grainy filter like it's got like a grainy filter on there so what they've done is very cleverly kind of gone to like a halfway house but that's still not as you see it i was talking to a guy in the tv about that and and the reason they do that is because historical films historical movies just don't look right if they're in vivid if they're in vivid color we've in we've become so accustomed now to the way historical drama is represented and if it's if it was in sort of clear crystal clear bright colors we wouldn't accept that as an historical historical like 4K, movie like in 4k kind of hd you'd be like oh what's this this is weird this is this must be like oh there's some oh these are modern people dressing up as 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 like Romans or whatever, it's a strange one, mate. The way we trick our we trick ourselves, you know, like, like that. Um, on the on the book side of things, then, what kind of things did you um, did you learn doing your first series of books that you've done? This, this question is totally for me. <laughs> or did you learn doing your first series that you'd wish you'd known at the beginning? Like, what what's what's some of the biggest lessons that you learned going through it? Um, not just as as a historical fiction writer but just as an author in general I, I, I guess I learned that there aren't really any rules I used to think before I got published I used to wander around bookshops and kind of daydreaming about what it would be like to be a published author and it was uh, for, for a while it was all-consuming I was so desperate to get a publishing deal it, it hurt you know it was it was it was a painful experience um, and I used to buy all these books about how to get published and read were, you know as if there was a a secret that that you could learn and i've since kind of realized that there really isn't and you just have to 
do it and if it's good enough and lands on the right person's desk at the right time you might you might get published you know um uh, but you make things happen yourself in in life generally like i'm whether it's whether it's a book deal, whether it's trying to get some a sc something screen a screen project off the ground or whatever, you just have to keep hammering away and hammering away. And nobody just turns up at your door and says, "Yeah, I'm going to make a film of your book," or "I'm going to give you a publishing deal." It just doesn't happen that way. You have to really go and fight for it over and over again, and eventually you, you might get somewhere. You know, I, I started writing the, the novel in um, 2004, the first book. I got the publishing deal in 2007, and it was published in 2009. So it was a long road of kind of desperately hoping and trying and, you know, writing, emailing people all the time. And, um, yeah, you, you have to have stamina. You really do, even though it's a, a sedentary job. The, the strength is all internal. Absolutely. I, I, I second everything you just said. Like, it's the, the ability to get up, like, constantly get up off the canvas. Because um, even when you, like, this is the, when there's, if you're in work, from what I can tell, you know, and I'm fortunate now, I didn't know, really know any a few years ago, but I'm fortunate now to know a lot of people in TV, books, you know, um, music as well. It never stops. You are constantly going to get put down on the canvas. Um, I, I for At least from what I've seen with everybody else in my, like, my you know, my friends. Like, you know, some my, one of my friends was riding really high. He was one of the biggest DJs in the UK. And, like, I thought this year was going to be, like, massive for him, that he'd become, like, a household name DJ. Boom, COVID happens. You're back down on the canvas. You've got to get back, you know, now you've got to get back up again. And, and you know, it doesn't take a pandemic to do that. Like, um, you know, in my own experience, I got really lucky off the bat. Boom, deal straight off the bat with Penguin. And then wrote another book, and I'm thinking... Um, right, everything I write from now on is going to get published. Nope, no one wants to publish this new one. I'm like, oh, so that can happen. Like, you, it, you, it's constantly yeah. kind of put down. So I think you're dead right, mate, with the stamina for people. Um, what, and one thing that I, I do think as well is that um, you don't have any entitlement for your art to get put out or published and paid for in the world. And that's something that people seem to think, well, if I do something, it's going to get published. You don't have the entitlement to, for that. But I do strongly believe if you do something and you do it well, you will find a home for it somewhere if you are willing to keep working at it. Mm. Well, yeah, that's the, the the idea is that publishing, in particular, is still kind of um, well to use a naval term, a meritocracy. You know, um, and if if it's if it's good, hopefully it will rise. But it's difficult to get heard. There are so many books out there. When you see how many books are published every week, and you think, how could how can anyone ever find my book? And especially if you don't, especially with bookstores not being open, you know, over COVID and everything. So my book, last book came out in the middle of lockdown, which, <laughs> <laughs> which I was uh, not particularly delighted about. But um, fortunately, got into the supermarket, a couple of supermarkets. So it still did all right. But obviously, obviously it wasn't available in any high, high street shops. So um um, you know, it's a it's a difficult a difficult situation, really. It's a weird one, mate, isn't it? Because it's like one of those ones where you got to look at the silver lining. Because Brothers in Arms came out in paperback in May, and it was the only book I've ever had where I haven't gone to the supermarket to see on the shelf. Because I was like, well, I don't want to kill my gran for the sake of going to have a look at the book. Yeah. But it was one where it's like, well, you still just got to be like, got a fucking book published, dude. Like that's you know pretty cool. And, and like as far as like um, like you said earlier, mate, like. This year, we it's a great year to be a writer. You know, it, it really is. And, and, and it's, so, you you know, you yeah, 
would have booked have, have done better in a year where it was where people were actually in shops yeah they would but it's you know the on the plus side is you're still able to keep you know to keep writing to keep making books that will come out in years where people aren't locked down um when it comes to your you know your book series and stuff how how do you decide about which how 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 do you decide about how long you're going to have a series run for and and when it's time to start in a different period and and how far ahead do you look with that kind of stuff yeah so obviously there are some authors that will uh, will just write kind of a series and just keep it going and going and going and going but i've never even though i kind of like the idea of building up that kind of momentum so that you get to the point where some of these guys whether it's you know bernard cornwall or <laughs> yeah exactly exactly the money where you where you just know that you've got you've built up such an audience now that the book's going to go out and everyone's going to buy it and job done but that just doesn't interest me I, I just i just would get bored out of my brain writing the same book over and over again so um i do like to jump around that's why i've done so i've done vikings i've done English Civil War, two books set during the English Civil War. I've done a kind of a pirate one, which was a co-write with Wilbur Smith. Um, I did, uh, what else have I done? Oh, yeah, Lancelot and Camelot. And now I'm doing a, a thriller set in Arctic Norway, so uh, which is contemporary. So that's the biggest jump, obviously, out of that, <laughs> out of those. But um, that's, for me, it's got to, it's got to stay fresh and, and, and it's got to be a, a challenge and, yeah, you know, I don't like making life too difficult for myself, but um, I also do enjoy a challenge. Yeah, I'm, I'm on the same page, mate. And here's the thing as well, like we're both saying, like, yeah, the Arctic one might be set um, contemporary, but people are people. So, and story is, and story, compelling story is compelling story. So it's like, yeah, there's those other bits that fit around it, but I'm the same way, mate. Like, you know, for me, being a writer is what like having a job that you get to enjoy so if you get into the point where it's a mundane repeating the same thing well you might as well be doing a nine to five and not have any of the risk that comes with being a self-employed artist yeah and the weight gain of sitting down writing a book <laughs> that you can compete all day long yeah yeah um but how do you go about selecting your next you know your next series like where does where where do kind of um where do ideas come from in 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 um in, in your life so with Lancelot, really, that I was looking for, I was looking for a big name to to pin a series or a book on because it, at that point in historical fiction, it seemed that to be heard, you had to have a big name on the front of your book. That, and there was something about that because if you picked an obscure period of history or something that people hadn't really heard of, they it probably wouldn't have got on the supermarket shelves at that point, certainly because. By picking a, a name that everyone's heard, whether it's Lionheart or whether it's um, you know uh, Caesar or whoever it is, if if you've got that name on the front cover, people people have already there's already a brand awareness. The brand being the character that you're writing about, so people already know something about it, and hopefully they think, oh yeah, I know a bit about Caesar. I want to know more, so they buy the book. Whereas if you just pick an ob- a nobody from the Roman period then you, you haven't got that instant brand awareness. So I wanted a big name on the front of the cover and I came up with Lancelot because I thought everyone's done King Arthur to death, but no one's done Lancelot and he was the best knight, you know, so how come we've not talked about him? Um, and obviously part of the greatest love triangle in in in, in, in Western literature. So um, so I, I came up with that idea. I didn't have a story at that point. I just had the title. <laughs> I just had the title. I thought that's a cool title. Now then, what's this book going to be about? 
That's a really good idea, though, mate. Like, like I've never even thought about that, to be quite honest. So I'm definitely stealing that. Yeah, off go you. for it. Um, though that is that's that's a that's a really good idea, um, because like you said, like people, there's a like edit brand like there is brand vikings have a well you know what though I, I credit with you with being part of the people to give vikings the strong brand back because i don't think they they really did have that strong of a brand until the last probably 10 years really isn't it like the last 10 years they got massive yeah what what was what what's that kind of like did like do you take credit for that do you see that and think right i am part of the reason that people know a lot more about the vikings now? yeah i mean i think i think so the books have been translated in, you know around the world in um so I'm definitely, I've definitely been a part of that. I think that the TV show has been a massive part of that. <laughs> Although my <laughs> books were out first, which is, um, which is a shame. <laughs> um, Bernard Cornwall's Vikings. Well, you see, his was a Saxon series, but then Viking Vikings got big, and now people talk about it as a Viking series. It's like, no, it wasn't. It was they were his Saxon. They were his, his Saxon books. <laughs> yeah, they were Saxon. Well, it's about yeah, it's about um, yeah, exactly. They were his Saxon books. Let's rebrand this. Let's everybody call them the Viking books. So there, there was a Viking wave yeah. that that sort of started rolling up again, which is great because. For a while, particularly in Scandinavia, people didn't really talk. You know, I'm half Norwegian, so I spent a lot of all the, a lot of time in Norway, and people didn't. They they seemed embarrassed about the Vikings for the, most of my childhood. It wasn't something they, because the reputation of Vikings was heathen savages, you know, sort of un, uneducated, whatever, uh, and they they got a bit of a bad rep. And um, I think now Vikings are getting popular again. Obviously, the Nazis appropriating some of the Norse mythology and symbols didn't help. <laughs> that didn't help the Viking brand, um, so they they had to be sort of rehabilitated a bit uh, after after that nastiness. But um, yeah, I think they. Well, there's also the other part of the Scandinavian Vikings. They're the ones that, well, the ones in Scandinavia, are the ones that stayed in Scandinavia. So they, the, the Vikings, are the ones that went away. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so all the ones in Scandinavia yeah. were probably just the farmers. So. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Mate, how do, you, how do you feel about like so recently? There's um so the period I wrote about with the Roman books. There's a Netflix show about it now, and I was like, oh, I would kind of yeah. like to have been involved with that. Have you ever? Did you get a similar experience with the Vikings? With the Vikings, I shows? actually gave up watching the series because I had so many uh, people were emailing me saying, "Oh, this bit is just just like in your book," and uh, and I it, I just started getting a bit frustrated and I stopped watching it. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't even watched the one on Netflix because I know because the thing is they probably never looked at my books right they probably never have but if I did see something that was similar I'd be like what what why why can I be on a show why can I be on a show just dress me up I want to kill someone on the show so like I've just like because people message me about it, I'm just like no I'm just just not gonna just not gonna look at it do you think do you think it's a good series oh fucking hell mate and now I got watch it do, do you think it do you feel like it benefited your books though that there was the series own stuff I think yeah I expect it. I expect so. Um, yeah, I mean, Vikings, the TV show was huge, wasn't it? It, it was absolutely huge. So I guess there must have been some people. I don't actually know what the crossover of a book readership or, or book audience is um, mm. with, with a TV because, you know, there must be a lot of people who watch TV who never, never pick up a, a novel. So I don't really know what the cross, crossover is. I don't know what you think about that. Um, I'm sure there is some, but I do think you're probably right that most there's probably not that much. Um, but I, I'm very much a big believer of like um, I want people to get into reading your books because I think then they'll read mine, and I'm, and I want people to read Bernard Cornwell because then hopefully they'll come to ours and stuff. I'm like 
as a book reader, I don't think there's such thing as enough books. So, you know, I've had it before with people, you know, let's say it's a scarcity mentality of, oh, we don't want to promote other other books and other authors because people won't buy that many. I'm like, people buy, I buy five books for every book that I read, yeah. at least, at <laughs> least. People buy, and, and we're talking about purchases a lot of times of four or five quid. You know, like fair enough if you're like saying, well, I can't, don't want to promote his his um, mansion selling company because I've got a mansion selling company. You know, we're talking about a few quid here. Like you can, like you can buy a lot of books in a year, and and, and I, I th- feel the same way with TV. You know, I always think that like if you've got it's it's great or you know dance music i love dance music if you've got a few producers that are making great trance that's going to bring in oh i'm going to start listening to trance now who are these other djs and i think it's i think i think it's a great thing to have i actually think it's worse to have people who are bad in a genre rather than people who are good in a genre you know if you if because if someone picks up a book that's a historical fiction book and it's fucking tonk then they're probably never going to read historical fiction again yeah totally absolutely yeah we, we yeah we i agree with that entirely we we are there is a I don't, are you in the historical rights association no i know that's a pretty <laughs> geeky thing to no, say i know I'm not mean. Um, <laughs> it's not a rock and roll uh, kind of club, no. But it's um, but what what the authors do is everybody's really really kind of up for chatting on doing stuff like this, basically that we're doing now and um, helping promote each other's books. And, and I think that's a really cool thing. There doesn't seem to be that competition. There's no there's no one sort of slagging off anyone else's books and stuff like that. So I think it's really cool. I've been really lucky, mate. I've had uh, Anthony Richards, yourself. You know, you guys gave me quotes for the book, which I really appreciated. You know, to get to get going on it, and um, it's really it's it's nice as well because when you come into a new job, you don't know what the industry is going to be like, and to find out that people like I met uh, when Ben Kane was doing a talk in Wrexham. You know, met, got in touch with Ben, and we met up and had a drink and stuff. It gave me some advice. It's fantastic. Yeah. You know, and I and 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 I'll say this as well, mate. The squaddy market of books. You know, people like. You know, your Brian Woods and stuff out there. It's been great for promoting each other's books. Um, and you do see it with other things where people are trying to undermine each other. And I, I think, I mean, we only have one life. We don't want to be miserable doing it. And I think it's it's something it's just something to be very thankful for, to be in a in an in a niche, in a niche or a genre where people do try and help each other out. I think it's fantastic. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? Um, so going on to this new series then, mate, right? How big? How big were your first your books? And by how big? I'm, I'm like I'm doing a very technical thing with my fingers right now. Doing how big were your first books? What kind of word count were the Viking books? Um, and then like uh, your because you're uh, in the uh, what is it Arthurian? Is that the right yeah. word? You're, yeah, you're, yeah, uh, yeah. Arthurian ones are absolutely massive, aren't they? Yeah. Well, so the Viking books tend to be. 120 130 140,000 words. Oh, so it's still pretty big pretty big boys then. Yeah, I I don't yeah, there's only one I've done which is under 120,000 I think. Um all of them I would say 140 is probably normal. And then with historical fiction you can't really write under 100,000. It has to it has to go over 100,000 but you know, uh all lean of course. But um the, the Arthurian series, yeah, the last lot was 203,000. So that was a, mon- wow. that was a monster. <laughs> that was an absolute monster, which is, it makes no sense because I really don't like working that hard, you know. So <laughs> I, I don't know how that happened. And Camelot was, what was Camelot, 170,000, something like that. So it's still pretty big. 
Yeah. So, uh, and, and is that the first draft or is that the final edited, co- um, the uh, the edited copy? Oh, that's the f- just, final thing, yeah. So just to give people, we should go give some context as well. What would you say average length of a book is? Probably 100,000? It depends. If it's, if, it's a thrill, if, yeah. if it's a thriller, you're talking about 80,000, 80,000, 90,000 for a thriller. Uh, historical, yeah, 120,000, let's say. And uh, fantasy is, well, you name it. <laughs> Seven million five hundred. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I've just done. Um, I've just done my first plus. I've just done my first hundred and thirty thousand oh, yeah. book word book, word book um, which was because. But I can see where you come because it's your world. Your world building more, aren't you? With with historical and fantasy and things. There's so much. The st- the kind of stories about the same, but it, the, you've you've got to build up so much of explaining the world um, around it. I am actually trying with my next couple of books, though, to do eighty thousand yeah. for the historical, just because I want to see how much I can strip back on this. Because I got to be honest, mate. Talking about what kind of armor and stuff people have, it fucking bores me. And like you were saying earlier, I'm like, I'm, I want to enjoy my job. I want to be. I want to be writing about. Um, actually, you know what? Let me ask you this: What part of the book do you enjoy writing about most? Like, what was like? If is it dialogue? Is it like backstory? Like, what was the favorite part of the book for you? I enjoy dialogue because it seems to it seems quick. The world building I enjoy when I've done it. You know, when I, Lancelot and Camelot, they were very descriptive, and you know, I write, I, I go for it, and I and I kind of it gets, I get quite lyrical and it's beautiful and poetic and I go, yeah, that's great, but it's painful. But the actual doing of it is, is painful. It really hurts my brain. Really, really, really does. Um, <laughs> it's intense, you know, it's really kind of, so, um, yeah, I don't actually find the process easy at all. Writing, I find, I find very difficult. I used to, used to, used to kind of in, enjoy it a lot more, let's say with the Viking books. It, it, um, it was, well, I kind of didn't think about it as much. I guess. And like with all things, the better you get, the more you become a critic of your own stuff. And uh, we've chatted about this before. And I've, I've got the impression that you, you, you kind of want to tell me to stop being precious and just get on with it. But, yeah. I mean, um, for, well, yes and no, mate, because it depends what kind of position somebody's in. I think there's, I think when you're trying to start writing, I, th- I think for anyone out there, when you, when you're starting, you need to just get on with things. But then if you're in a position to go over something, a lot then do so but i do also think that there's a and again this is something that i kind of like have been told from other people now in different things it's like they get to a point where the stuff you're changing is only going to be noticed by you i think you know like if it's music you've got a tiny little you add a little bit of extra symbol in somewhere or something like no one's noticing that except for for you and i think it's but I think though, if you're if you have the self awareness to be honest with yourself, you know when am I doing this because I'm putting off submitting it, or am I doing this because I do genuinely think that I could have done a better job at the beginning? Well, I don't do rewrites really very much, so I spend the time at the time to get it to get it right, and it really doesn't change much then from from that draft to publishing. So when you said about word count. I um I never take words out in the edit. I always add. Right. I, I always my books always get longer after I've submitted them rather than the other way around, which I think is it's normal for for well editing means doesn't it taking away well when I so but I don't I always add to it. Uh, but I would say that 
in my life, I'm um, far from a sort of perfectionist. In, in I'm in no way a perfectionist in anything I do. Like if I'm hanging a picture around the house, I kind of go, well, that's roughly between there and there sort of thing. I'll pick up a book and use it as a, a ruler or something. Um, and that'll do. And it's like, yeah, that, that looks all right. That'll do me. But with the writing, I, I kind of have become, it's the only thing I do in my life that I actually do it to the utmost of my ability. I think that's the thing. So what is your, what is your kind of process like? Not necessarily on a daily pro, uh, process, but big picture, start to finish. Where do you, how, what are the kind of building blocks from going from idea to finished book? Well, that's changed over the years. I, my publisher now sort of likes to see a really detailed plan of the book which which you know i would have thought after what i'm on my 12th novel now i would have thought if i just said i've got this idea i'm going to write um, a book about attila the hun they'd just say yeah go and write that brilliant <laughs> but no they want and because now with the publishing process everybody at the publishing house gets involved in it so you know where whereas it once it might have been your editor and the kind of the, the head honcho and the finance guy. Now it's the the marketing team, the, the sales guy, the people that are actually going to hand sell the books into Waterstones. They want to know how many copies they think they can get into that branch of Waterstones. And so it's becoming a process that's kind of taken to the limits uh, and, and of the fine detail. And, and so they really have to be sure that they really want to know how many exactly how many copies they're going to sell of it before before they decide whether they're going to give you the the advance to write it. As you know, I mean, it's it's harder and harder to get a, a publishing deal at the moment. And um, so, with my new book, uh, yeah, I had to, well, we, even with Lancelot, the chap just the chapter plan was probably seventeen thousand words or something, uh, which is. Um, it's like homework, really. Yeah. They're like, Giles, how many people are you raping in this book? <laughs> like, <laughs> there, there, has, there has been none of that since my, <laughs> since my first book, I don't know. But do you, is that something that you would do anyway, though? Is the Would you do a chapter-by-chapter chapter outline anyway? Because uh, like, the reason I say this is because, and I've talked about this a lot, because I'm sure you were the same way. You get people asking you, how do I go about writing a book? And like, you know, I listen to Bernard Cornwell doing interviews and he says, oh, well, I just start writing and then I just see where it takes me. And I try and tell to people, the thing is, Bernard Cornwell's written so many books that even if he doesn't write a plan, plans are so imprinted into his mind at this point that he is writing to a plan, even when he says that he isn't. You know, he is a master at what he does. He can do it in his sleep. His, so he does have a plan. He just, it's in his head. It's not on, on paper. And But also, when you're getting a seven-figure advance and, you, and you're doing one book a year, you can afford to get halfway through and go, ah, oh, fuck that up, and go back. Whereas if you have got three kids and you're working a job and then you're trying to write for 30 minutes in the evening, you cannot afford that. Or you can, but it's going to take you 10 years to write your book and not a couple of years. So so is outlining something that you're like, are you a, are you a fan of outlining? Yeah, I am now. I, as I say, I didn't used to be with the Viking books. I, I didn't really, I just kind of did what Bernard says he does. And I just sat down and started writing and see what, to see where it would take me. But now I do plan and I'm glad I do because at least you've got a roadmap there and you can just, even though sometimes I'll think, oh, I've not looked at the plan for, for a while and I, I find it on my computer and, and realize I've gone completely <laughs> off, off track. But I think that's okay. As long as you know where you, you know, as long as you, as long as the words are getting down, I think that's the thing. Uh, it can be a struggle some days. And this is where Bernard, 
Bernard uh, once said, well, he's, I think he said it several times, that he doesn't believe in writer's block because people often say, you know, do you ever get writer's block? And he said, I don't believe in it. He said, um, you know, I'll believe in writer's block the first time a nurse turns up hospital and says, oh, I can't, I can't work today. I've got... Uh, I got nurses block. <laughs> I mean, he says something similar to that, but but I don't think that's yeah. a fair analogy, actually, because if you're doing a job as a nurse, doing an incredible job uh, in that sort of field, you every day you turn up and you have to react to whatever the situation might be. But as a writer, you have to make stuff where before there was no stuff so there is nothing there until it comes out of your brain. So I think it is a very different. I don't think that analogy works. And and sometimes you can sit down and think, I literally don't know where this story is going from here. Or you might know where it's going to go in the next chapter, but you don't have to get to that point. Uh, so for, for, for me, there are some days where it's a real struggle and, I'm, and I'll, I might only get 600 words down in a day. Um, but as long as, uh, as long as I keep going, it's momentum, I think, is the thing that you need to try and get. And, and, and that's the thing, mate. Like, I, I don't believe in writer's block because you still have your fingers and you can write. So a writer's block to me insinuates that you can't write at all. But I can, because my thing's always just like, like, okay, you might not have the great, th you might not be in the flow that day. You might have all kinds of things on your mind, but you can still write and writing something will be better than nothing. And you might have to come back and re-edit almost everything that you did, but you can still write. So I think writer's block is, um, I think people are always looking for ex reasons to get excuse off the hook. Like, oh, uh, well, you know, um, I had to take the kids to school this morning. That wasn't planned. I can't write today. I'll put it back. You know, it's it, it's so to me, writer's block gives the reason I'm opposed to it is it gives people an excuse to get off the hook. It's like, no, you still got your hands. You still got the computer or whatever. Or even if you haven't got the computer, open a notebook. You can still write. But I yeah. mean, but there's definitely going to be days where you write shit. Like, you know. Well, a, 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 basically, a professional can't have writer's block because you can't afford it. You just you, you're on a deadline, so you got to keep writing. That's all there is to it, it. Exactly, man. We've had Stephen Pressfield on the podcast. I'm a big fa big fan of Steve's, and you know, his, I, I love his books. Like, you know, do the work and the war of art and those kind of things, which basically is say, saying that it's like I and I, this is what it comes down to, I suppose. Is like, are you an amateur or are you a professional? And if you're a professional, you can't have, you know, I mean, the nurse's block thing is pretty funny. And I like, but it's kind of true. It's like, well, if you're a writer, you can't afford to have, you know, block. And and look, if you do get, if you do feel like you have a mental block, well, find out ways to get over it. Like, you know, if if, if that's a problem, if, if find out, pro like, write about why you have writer's block. Like, the, there's going to be something in your head. You've got a pen in your hand or a laptop in, in front of you. Right. So, so like, yeah, I, I don't believe in writer's block, but I do believe in obviously having bad days at the office, you know, because we all have them. So what, what is your kind of like, and, oh, and just while we're on the subject of outlines, I just want to back up as well and say that I do, I am a strong supporter of outlines because I do think that um, um, I'm still in a stage of my career where I'm learning a lot. I'm not in the burn of Cornwall stage where I could just do it off the top of my head. So for anybody listening, the chances are you're probably not going to be at the burn of Cornwall stage too. So I do, I, I do, especially if time is, is time is an issue. Um, so for somebody that's like, maybe you're still in the military and maybe you're trying to get a book done about your tour in Afghanistan at the same time, you probably should look at doing 
outlining um or just go for it without but recognize that you may have to just come back and start from the beginning as long as you kind of go into it with your eyes open um but yeah i think um you know outlining for me is like because i'm not in a position where i can live off one book a year i have to do several books a year so outlining is is critical um, outlining is critical for me because that enables me to bang out three, four books, you know, a year, which I wouldn't be able to do otherwise without it. Um, so, with with the with, with your series now, mate, when you've gone, you've gone from these historical fiction ones, because again, this is <laughs> I'm, I'm asking a lot of questions here that are definitely beneficial for me. Oh, for the beneficial and interesting for the listeners too. Um, you you you're going through these different time periods but you have been historical fiction before as being like a kind of like a common thread to it so how how are you how are you feeling about the move from going from historical fiction to contemporary fiction so yeah it's it's not a permanent move um by the way but it's just that this was that i mentioned earlier that it was a story that i had in my mind for for years uh and the reason i sort of came up with the idea was i did a cross-country skiing trip where we had to ski a long way, build an igloo, sleep in the igloo, sleep, ski off again, and um, that sort of stuff. And uh, that's when I came up with the idea. And this was, yeah, this was about 15 years ago. And so that story had been in my mind ever since I wanted to write it, but obviously as a historical author, and that was my niche. Uh, so my, I never really thought about doing it. And then I wrote Lancelot and Camelot, and they were two really kind of involved books. They took so much out of me, like emotionally um, and, yeah, physically as well, because it's kind of exhausting to just kind of be in this world and to, to, to sort of to be in that world for 203,000 words. Um, <laughs> and I, I felt creatively I needed a refresher. I needed a, a, a palate cleanser after those two books. And it struck me that this was the perfect time to just do something different and just to, to get my creativity mojo back and, and, and refresh myself. And so that's what I, that's what I'm, that's why I'm doing this book and it's a survival book and it's, um, you know, it's inspired by all sorts of things like that, the trip that I did, but also by, you know, Jan, Jan Balsford, the Norwegian uh, guy who escaped in World War II, one of the most incredible stories, but um, yeah, survival story about a father and a daughter in Arctic Norway and they get involved in some bad stuff and, and and somebody's trying to kill them basically so it's it is different from the stuff i've written before in the respect that it's contemporary but it's set in the arctic and there's nothing there so it's kind of it's sort of it could be it could be historical the only difference yeah. you know the only difference is really that there's there, there is a rifle or two involved hunting rifle, <laughs> hunting rifle involved um but, but other than that the hallmarks of my other stuff are still in this book but it did have to trim it trim it back a lot so like you said about the world building when you're writing a book that they're gonna put in the thriller section even though to me it's not like it's not what i think of as a thriller it's more of a survival story um but if they're going to pull it put it in the thriller box which a publisher is always going to have to decide where they're going to put it um i found that i was being too descriptive and i had to just keep chopping and chopping and chopping because they just without you just want someone to turn to keep turning the pages with this kind of book uh well with any kind of book you want that but there aren't those moments in the same way as Lancelot where somebody might if I'm lucky kind of half close a book and just think about the paragraph they've just read and try and picture it in their minds you know the thriller's not not really like that 
So um, yeah, I'm loving it. I'm, I'm, I'm loving being able to make contemporary references, which is obviously something I've never done before. I'm loving not, not having to look up every bit of information about flora and fauna that might have been in, in post-Roman Britain, you know. <laughs> um, and yeah, because my books are so sort of researched. To, if a bird flies over, I have to know that that bird would have been seen in that part of Britain back then and hadn't just sort of appeared in the last 200, 200 years or same with the same with the plants and the trees and everything else so it's yeah it's a fa- it's a really really sort of refreshing experience i'm enjoying it a lot what, what's your kind of day to, daily process like i i've turned it into sort of a nine to, it didn't used to be a nine to five it used to just be pretty much all consuming but i'm trying to do it as a more nine to five job now just to treat it more as a you always take it with you because when you're it's i'm running my own business essentially you know what it's like you have to do your own publicity and um, your own your own marketing and it's kind of full-on in that respect and when you're not actually at the keyboard you're 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 really thinking up ideas or you're chasing the film deal or you're doing some something to do with your 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 hopes and hopes and dreams and so so in that respect it is always still all consuming but in terms of being at the desk i try and i'm trying to sort of nine to five because after that my brain is fried if i don't you know i don't don't, it's not like i go off on an hour's lunch break or whatever i'm pretty much there um at the screen and i and i as long as i get some exercise in during the day and i do my thousand words that's that that's enough for me i'm happy with that so that's that's the aim of day, is it? A thousand words. A thousand words for me, yeah. Because though, like I say, it's nothing compared to a lot of my colleagues who who um, will churn out two thousand, three thousand words a day. But but I can't comment on the quality of, of that stuff. But when I write my thousand words, that's that's those thousand words will be in the book at the end of the day when it's when it comes out on the shelf. So it's a thousand good words and um, a thousand good words, some exercise, bit of TV that's that's lockdown life really there's not a lot else that goes on <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm excited because I, I i write a lot a day but i don't go into the same detail as you do with which is something that i'm starting to now because i'll be honest with you mate it never even occurred to me that there'd be different birds in the uk and stuff back then but like that's something that i've started to learn you know starting to 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 kind of learn and like to to because it's fucking really hard to find out what trees were around a thousand years ago or two thousand years ago. So that's something that I'm trying to do to do more of, um, you know, to do more of now. And it's it's um, it's it's like I I, I again I, I think it's one of these things where it's like you've got to you've got to unfortunately make if if somebody's working part time or sorry or working part time on a book, then you've got to ask yourself a question. Is accuracy more important than expediency? You know, do you want to get this book to a publisher in the next year or are you willing to wait three years? Like, so anyone that's listening that's looking to do a book, you know, these are the things that you need to ask yourself. Like, if if a book is going to be affected by not having that kind of level of detail in, then you might need to you change the timeline that you're looking at, you know, for getting out there. So these are all these are all really good points. Um what 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 kind of um what what is the the next book of yours that's going to hit the shelves? Is have you got have, have you got um, another one that's waiting to come out, or, or will this thrill will be the next one? Um, so Camelot will come out in paperback in June, I think, next year, and then Far Wanderer, which is the the new one, the thriller, is going to come out the year after that. Because it it could I will be delivering it in probably February. So it, it, in theory, it could have come out at the end of next year, but everything because of COVID, everything's a massive backlog. 
So it's going to have to be pushed back to the, the following year. So that's, yeah, Far Wanderer will be the next new book. Awesome. Well, mate, I really enjoyed today's chat. And like I say, I appreciate your support in my own writing career as well and all that. I, I really appreciate that. Um, before we before we leave, can you just let everyone know where they can where they can find your books and where they can find you? And then uh, we'll get your final thoughts for the noble listeners. So where do you get my books? Well, you've got a lot of listeners in the States, haven't you? And I, I... We, got, we got some, we got, we got some there. We got, we got a few people in Wrexham who I don't think read, so we won't bother with them. <laughs> but we're, we're, we're pretty even split between the States and um, in the UK. Yeah, so in the UK, I mean, Waterstones is always a good bet. Um, and uh, yeah, because they're not in the supermarkets now because it, it was back in May, but they don't carry. You know, people will say to me, oh, your book wasn't in the supermarket. And I say to them, well, <laughs> that's because it was out six months ago in the supermarket. Yeah, they, ca- they carry like 30 books, dude. Like, I'm sorry, I can't hold my space there. Yeah. Um, yeah, fucking Michelle Obama needs 29 of those spaces. Like, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> exactly. So otherwise it's uh, Amazon or I'm just about to reopen the shop on the website for signed copies, actually, because com- coming up to Christmas, I think that's quite nice if people can get hold of a signed copy, which is www.jarschristian.com. I'll, I'll put those in the show notes as well so people can just click on on the link and go straight through because I know they're too lazy to put, use their fat little thumbs and uh, to go through that way. Um, so, Emma, any any final words of wisdom for the listeners? No, I think I think you need to go and watch um, Barbarians. That that oh, mate, no, ne- no, ne- don't ne- do it. Netflix series. I definitely can't do it at the moment because um, I'm I'm writing. I'm one of those things where I don't like to read anything that's related to what I'm working on at the time. Yeah. So yeah. right right now I'm watching I'm watching comedies. So I've written some comedies this year. Um, although to be honest, that was a terrible idea because of the more like talk about COVID backlog. But I'll tell you about that in private. But devastated. I thought was, I thought I thought this was the year, mate. Things things were all trending upwards. And and this is actually you no, know, you know what I will tell this to the listeners. Basically, after eight years of hammering away at screenplays, this looked like the year that I had um, a. I don't know if he's a list or not. He's pretty a list. It was on board with it, loving it, and I was like, "This is it. It's finally happened. Got the TV show." And then it's like, "Now nah, nobody's making anything. The the slate is backed up at least for a year. We've got to come back to this maybe in a year." Which by that point other projects have come in it's not as timely anymore so just listeners just so you know like you know you just have to keep picking yourself up off the canvas as i said as i as i said earlier but um check out giles's books check out my books too you fuckers get two of them together but sign copies too um i really um i and i know to be fair mate we have a very good listenership on this podcast who are very we do i think we have a good book book reading book reading audience here any any anything any little stories actually that I forgot I forgot to ask you about this one because obviously we had the story earlier about the guys who were caught out in the sunshine um caught out in the sunshine basking in the sun rather than being on the lookout for the enemy are there any other little kind of tales like that that you think could be handy to any serving soldiers listening anything that you've anything that you've come across that would kind of a good lesson for soldiers that transcends time well, there was this uh, this officer in the English Civil War who had a wooden leg, and um, some of the soldiers thought he was keeping gold in his wooden leg, so they they took it <laughs> off and beat him to death with it. <laughs> That's awesome. So basically, any of the amputees are listening to this podcast because I do know we have a few of them. Uh, I now know where you keep your stash, and I will be. <laughs> <laughs> I will be beating you to death with it next time I see you. Oh, mate, that's a classic one, mate. Like, 
Why, why did they beat him to death? Because they were pissed <laughs> off that there was no nothing in there? <laughs> I, I assume so, yeah. Bastards. People are bastards. Well, mate, thank you for that one. We're going to finish it on a, finish it on a happy story. Um, but, yeah, thanks so much for coming on, mate. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for your time. Thanks very much. Thanks, bro. Brilliant fun. Thank you. Cheers. Catch you soon, mate. Cheers. Guys, thank you for joining us on today's podcast. Giles, thank you for coming on, mate. Really enjoyed that. Uh, if you want to find Giles' books, then there's links in the show notes. Uh, there's also a link to Vsome Store for the last few days on that before we shut it down for a few months. But please, guys, as I've, as I've been saying, if you enjoy the episodes, if you enjoy the guests, please support the guests. I'm sure if um, there's someone in your life who would like one of Giles' books. He didn't come on to the promote of the book, by the way. I reached out to Giles to ask him to come on because... Why? I wanted to talk to him. He's a fascinating bloke um, and he's he's done a lot for me. So I wanted to repay the favour and have him on here. And I think you guys will agree, he's a top bloke. So um, everything's up in the show notes, guys. And we're going to be back on Thursday with something a little different. Uh, as we did back in autumn, we're going to have young Sam on the podcast. Uh, so we'll be doing a bit of Q&A and advice for young blokes. Um, all right. We just actually, we recorded that earlier today. Um it basically turns into a ransom band, but we got young Sam on instead of Joe. I'm sorry, guys. I'm stressed out. So um, Sam was trying to ask me level-headed questions, and I basically went through the fucking roof like a shamuli. Um, <laughs> but you know what? There might be some entertainment value in there. So that's coming out on Thursday. Then on Monday, we're back with a former member of The Reg, a.k.a. The Pasture Regiment, um, Jamie Flynn. Does crazy bass jumping, wingsuits, all kinds of nutcase stuff that make your mum worry if that was the kind of thing that you were into. Um, he's got really, really fascinating stories. Top bloke. We're gonna have a. Uh, well, I hope Jay, I hope Jamie comes back on often to the podcast because I really enjoyed having a chat with him. That's we've already recorded that one too, so I can give you the big thumbs up, seal of approval on that one. All right, guys, I'll catch you next time. I love you. Bye. You told me not to worry, and you wouldn't break my heart You told me you were sorry, yeah, my whole world fell apart You said it's not my fault, and yeah, I've never done you wrong I'm grinding to a halt, now I can see you're moving on I promised I'd get better, and I told you things would change You keep me to the gutter, yeah, I'll never be the same I've gotta let you go, now live your life and spread your wings And yeah, you put on quite a show, and pulled the puppet strings And are you sure that you don't want me? Remember all the pain, or maybe you should thank me It's your loss and my gain, I'm leaving now forever I won't hang my head Shame, but yeah, you've taken me for granted And you should feel ashamed You sold a dream to all of us A dream that we'd all die for A reason for us all to live And something we could fight for I might just help a man up to his feet Or hold a newborn But no matter what I do My hands remembering my rifle, yeah Life's hard, I know that Still wouldn't change shit I wouldn't go back, yeah I wouldn't go back Feelings I hold back Memories fade, yeah They go fast, yeah They go fast Good times to come and go Survive the highs and lows Just take a step by step I guess, yeah, I suppose Good times to come and go Survive the highs and lows Just take a step by step I guess